Hello and welcome to Maeve in America. These are immigration stories told by the people who've lived them. And this is our season finale, and it's a good one. I'm joined by W. Kamau Bell, who's our context king for this show. And we have a celestial treat lined up in the not-so-nebulous form of heartthrob astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. I connect myself to all humans who have ever lived because... Any two people in the world have a common ancestor. Just no matter how far back you look. More from my cousin Neil later. Now to my guest. You may have seen him on Samantha B or heard him on NPR talking about his new book, Revolution for Dummies. We have him here because he's an immigrant. So my name is Basim Yusuf. I was born in Cairo, Egypt. Basim moved to L.A. just over a year ago. Get this, he was a heart surgeon, then he became a comic, and then a host. Back in Egypt, he hosted the most popular late-night TV show in the entire Middle East. It was called El Bernameg, and at its height, it had 40 million views per episode. But the political climate changed, and Basim's show was taken off the air, and it was no longer safe for him to stay in Egypt. Am I right in thinking that you cannot go back to Egypt or... I wouldn't take the risk. I mean, why would I go back and put myself under the mercy of some custom uh, border control officers who think that he's doing the right thing? I already escaped from a very um, dangerous situation. Why would I put myself back there? And plus, why would I go back? I mean, I have actually struggled to make some sort of a success story there. Yeah. And it was taken away from me. And I had to leave. The success story he's talking about was El Bernamek. This is a clip from a recent documentary about Bassem. It's called Tickling Giants. And in this one, you'll hear Andil, who was a writer on the show. I remember the first time I saw Bassem Yusuf's show, I saw it as something on my side. He was encouraging people to be more critical toward authority. It's someone who's saying things that are similar to what we're saying to each other things that are not usually on TV, things that are critical of the media and the way it controls the people's minds. He's like our guy. It was very dangerous to have a show under Mubarak when they sent people to jail like journalists or activists that killed hope in people, that made people forget that change could happen. I wanted to ask about the show, the effect it had on the people who were watching and how much you were aware of that as you were making it. Did you know how powerful it was and how powerful was it? Well, when the show was airing, life literally stopped everywhere. I mean, the streets were empty. People were were scheduling their life around the show. Yeah. It, is like, it was like Super Bowl Sunday every single week. It was a scary burden to have. I spoke to W. Kamau Bell from United Shades of America and from the podcast Politically Reactive. He's our context king for today on comedy and politics. I mean, I, you know, I think as a comedian, you have to be challenging authority, even if the authority is the authority of, you know, individuals or the authority of, you know, of, you know, a corporation. I mean, you have to be challenging some authority, whether it's the authority of the subway train or the authority of the rain. You know, like you have to be challenging some authority or else you're not really doing your job. There's different levels of risk and there's different. Everybody can quantify risk differently. Uh, you know. Lenny Bruce was arrested. <laughs> so like, I feel like I'm probably not going to have that challenge for things I say on stage. If I get arrested, it's going to be for something else. Like nothing, because I'm a black man in America. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like I, I think sometimes comics on stage, even comics who say things that are provocative sort of have this thing of like, I'm dangerous. And, and it's like, well, you can really say whatever you want to at this point. 
I mean, I do think, you know, the current political climate is such that people feel more justified in using their anger against you than they did maybe two, three years ago. I think social media and because of who the president of the United States is and how he operates. So there there is a sense that people can be targeted and taken down just for being themselves. You know, we're talking about like, you know, somebody who's an oppressed group might just get taken down for being in the world, not for anything they said or did, but just because, you know, they're a Muslim with an opinion about inclusion. You know what I mean? I do think we live in an era where you do have to be prepared that attacks will come out of nowhere. I'm here on a green card, right? Yeah. And my passport is stacked with visas. Yeah. Everywhere in the world. I have a, I have a five years entry visa to Britain. I have more than 12 visas to the EU. And every time I apply to go to the EU, mm-hmm. I have to uh, to uh, offer proof of income, proof that I will come back, HR letters, criminal records to buy my ticket and to book my hotel and have invitation letters. Every time, even if I were going there for three days, the last time I, I gave them the emails of invitations like we need the originals. It is extremely humiliating, uh, and it, do, it 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 doesn't matter what is your record, what uh, what's your history, what's your status. With my Egyptian passport, I am dealt with as a second grade citizen of the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of um, immigrants go through this being strangled with this paperwork. And Mm -hmm. it seems like, oh, of course, it's just a form. But like you said, it's this repetitive kind of like beating down and like reminding you like you're not from here. You know, Uh, I mean, we dread those embassy visits Mm -hmm. and and they need bank statements and they have to be original and they have to be proof of residency. It's not just your driving license. They have to have like um, gas bills, electricity bills. It just... It's so personal. Like I mean, if I would marry yeah, someone, they yeah. will not ask for that much of a proof. <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> no, and I think that would be a very strange set of first dates, like if somebody was asking for your paperwork. Yeah, here's my gas bill. <laughs> so how's it going in America? I'm here in a different country, different language. It's not my mother tongue. I'm speaking to an audience that I can hardly relate to with different references. Mm -hmm. And I'm coming here in a saturated market with a cutthroat competition. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping to make it. So it uh, it is hard, terrifying, exciting, but terrifying. People call the United States the great melting pot. Everyone of all races, creeds and colors are equal and their hatred of Arabs. So right now for Arabs in America, the outlook is bleak, but that can change. America is the land of reinvention. That was a clip from the Democracy Handbook, which is a series that you made for Fusion. Do you think that you're more like a writer, performer, broadcaster? Aren't we all like a mixture of everything, yeah. right? Yeah. I yeah. can't dance, but apart from that... I'm... I can dance. You can? I, I dance tango and I dance salsa. I used to teach both, by the way. How many lives have you had? You're... I, I, do, I used to do that while I was a doctor, by the way. While I was a, a Wait heart a second, surgeon. you were doing heart surgery and tango at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> I have tango friends everywhere I go. The, 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 this is the family that I have everywhere. Because tango communities are connected everywhere. You go in, you check in any city, where's tango? And you go and you meet people and you most probably will know them because you met them in festival, you met them in tango marathons. It's amazing. 
you were a doctor and then you were like the top comic in the Middle East. Where did this drive come from? So there's two things. There is being true to yourself as doing the job as it should be done, holding the the uh, authority and media accountable. Mm-hmm. And there is the selfish part that you want to be the best at what you do. I'm never satisfied with what I do. I beat myself up for not getting 100%. Hmm. And uh, it maybe it's part of being a very insecure adult white male. So uh, I'm not even white, sorry, I'm brown. I'm sorry, I, I chose the wrong color. I'm, I, I, we are one of those people who take others. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And thank God they didn't the do other Arab. box. Yeah, yeah the, I mean, thank God they have others because if it was Arab or Middle Eastern, you know that we, we wouldn't even Trouble. take it. No, we will not take it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny because you you grew up in Egypt, you lived most of your career there. You never had to think of yourself as other, right? Until yeah. you're here, which I did. I didn't have to think of myself as anything, but now I have to. I have to find some sort of classification. And the thing is, I discovered that. It doesn't really matter what you think you are. What really matters what they think that you are. Hmm. So, for example, it doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or not, a Middle Eastern or not, uh, an Indian Sikh. It really doesn't matter. It's how they perceive you. And this is why you have a couple of Indians who were shot in Hmm. Kansas, because some guy decided that they are Muslim and they need to be killed. So it is how they perceive you. Uh, I look the way I am, I talk the way I am, and I'm going to be categorized in that um, box, whatever I do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if I spend 20 years in this country or I paid hundreds of dollars in elocution classes to make me sound more American, <laughs> but it's not going to happen. So <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because I'm going to maintain Wait, my accent. Are you from Kentucky? <laughs> um, I don't know what accent I'm doing right now. In Egypt, the country's first ever elected civilian president, Mohamed Morsi, of the Muslim Brotherhood, was ousted in a coup following mass protests. And under his successor, military general Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, there's been a dramatic deterioration in human rights, according to Amnesty International. So in a nutshell, uh, right now, Sisi's uh, Egypt is like North Korea plus two pyramids and internet. So something old, something new, internet and pyramids, <laughs> something blue, which everybody, everybody, yeah. And what's that? What, what's what's left? Uh, something borrowed. Oh yeah, we're borrowing our time outside of jail. <laughs> so that's exactly it. Yes. Hey, don't be so sad. I mean, come on. Let, let, Sorry, let, I know, I know. It's just that I feel like the hope that was captured in the film and like throughout the Arab Spring in every country, the hope that was there that things would change, to see now what's become, what's happened. Picture yourself during the French Revolution. Remember the hope and remember the disappointment. Remember uh, the beginning of the American Revolution Mm -hmm. and what happened for years afterwards. There was like street wars in D.C. for 12 years after 1776 and there were a lot of um, separatist movements and there was like a civil war, right? Struggle. Freedom comes with struggle. It's not a smooth ride. Revolutions don't work this way. It's a very long and lengthy process and Mm -hmm. it just started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at the long game? Yeah, I might not see the end game. Mm -hmm. I'm not seeing what if this will resolve into a much better ending. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is the generation that will come after me. Do you have any advice for us here in America? 
Number one, do not normalize what Trump is doing mm -hmm. because it's not normal. Uh, people are trying to cope with it. No, you need to call him out every single time. And second of all, for the people who are listening to the satirists and the comedian who are doing a great job, they need to understand that they are not activists and they're not freedom fighters and they're not politicians. Here's W. Khmer Bell again, echoing Bassem. I think it's like music, like the song or the joke can make people, it can help people go, oh, I never thought of things that way. And it can make people go, thank you for saying that that way, because now I know how to say it because I didn't know how to say it before. You know, it can help explain the world to people. It can help people give sort of quippy ways to explain wh what they think to other people. And ultimately, that means that it can help inspire people to do the work. But, you know, uh, you know, we shall overcome didn't create the civil rights movement. <laughs> like, you know, it, didn't, it just it just helped the people in the civil rights movement get through the civil rights movement. You know, like it's not I, I think that these things are important but they're not the thing. I don't think comics have to do the work. I don't think artists have to be activists. I don't want to put that pressure on us. Mm -hmm. But I think that we have to recognize that that's not the work. That's our work, but that's not the big capital W work that needs to be done to make the world a better place. So your new book, Revolution for Dummies, Laughing Through the Arab Spring. Can you, can you tell us about that? The Revolution for Dummies basically tells you what, does it look like in a full-blown brainwashing media machine? What you have now is sectors that are being brainwashed with ridiculous claims. We have had this forever and for us it's mainstream. Yes. So it is for you to look out for that. So for the uh, regular American citizen, it uh, it's a warning. Mm -hmm. For Trump, it could be used as a manual. <laughs> You're helping him. But, you know, I sometimes I kind of look at America today and I think, oh, guys, you're being hysterical. Like, it's not that bad yet, you know. Yet. Right. Yet. Donald Trump cannot really be a dictator with the Middle Eastern standards, but he's already affecting people's life. He is creating an atmosphere when he's making a lot of people uncomfortable. He's making people... Uh, feel that they're being pointed at, picked on, and that's dangerous. Hmm. It's, the, it's the atmosphere that he created, not the actual governance. Let's say, for example, for, God forbid, there is an incident today. I'm sure that Trump is praying for one, hmm. right? And the perpetrator is called Muhammad, right? For all minorities like us, it, this is very bad news. But it, it is not going to be only us that will be affected. Are there things like that you didn't expect that surprised you about America? No. Sitcoms prepares you quite well <laughs> to live in America. I'll tell you some. Like, if you watch Friends and uh, and Two Broken Girls and Two and a Half Men, it, you will have the perfect idea about America. Of I course. love that you call them Two Broken Girls. Yeah. Two Broke Girls? <laughs> yeah. Well, they're broken too. <laughs> <laughs> there goes your guest spot on Two Broke Girls. Yes. And <laughs> um, Basson, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can pick up a copy of Bassam's book, Revolution for Dummies, Laughing Through the Arab Spring, or watch the documentary Tickling Giants. Both are really great. Now, after the break, I get starry-eyed for Neil deGrasse Tyson. Welcome back to Maven America. So this is our season finale. And because it's an unpredictable and often scary time for immigrants to America... I wanted to get the bigger picture, the long view. And who better to run to than Neil deGrasse Tyson? 
I co-host his National Geographic show, Star Talk, and he's a mentor to me, and I guess to millions of people. As well as hosting Star Talk and Cosmos, he's an astrophysicist and he's the director of the Hayden Planetarium. It was ASMR, wasn't it? It's that feeling you get in your head that's like a twinkling feeling when someone's voice is really nice. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it makes it hard for them to focus. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so first of all, will we just explain where we are? We're sitting in your office. Yes, we're sitting in my office. Uh, this is the office of the director of the Hayden Planetarium. Yeah. That's the title I occupy. Can I ask about your... You don't have to ask me if you can ask. Well, sometimes I invited you don't... into my office. It's true. You can just ask. Do you have a cigarette? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Uh, no, I don't. What is, your, what is your immigration background, your family? Born in New York City. Both of my parents were born in New York City. Mm-hmm. Both of their sets of parents, uh, one set was born in... Puerto Rico, the set was born in Nevis and St. Kitts. Um, and their lineage continues through there until uh, at some point we all trace our origins back to Africa. Have you done that like DNA test that you can do? I have an active disinterest in that information. Why? I connect myself to all humans who have ever lived, not only to humans who are in some kind of genetic tracking that led to me because any two people in the world have a common ancestor, just no matter how far back you look. So it's arbitrary where you choose to draw the line. Yeah. And so I'm simply saying any two people, if you go far enough back, you will find the person who is the common ancestor of both people because of this fact. I don't look to just my ancestors for what I can be. I look to the entire species of Homo sapiens. You're not like going back to because, like with me, I'm like, oh, I'm Irish, and now I'm here. So like, no, you're African, and somewhere between then and now, you're you went through Ireland. That's the actual answer. Notice you went, you took your lineage to a point, and then you established that to be what you are. Mm-hmm. That's artificial. That's all I'm saying. I will not reference ancestry to define who and what I can become in this world. So I have an active disinterest. I've been asked many times. Uh, there's the guy who run, has the PBS show, Skip Gates, mm-hmm. who I forgot the title of the it's show. It's like Trace Me or something. Yeah, something. Yeah. And he wanted me. And Who's he, your daddy? The, the, <laughs> that's what, that was the first title, but PBS said no. <laughs> Their executives were like, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. who's your daddy? Who's, who's your daddy? Uh, so um, I said, no, I just, I'm not only do I not care i don't even want to know now since world war ii there haven't been as many people on the move so there's like migration oh oh, you you mean mass movement of of immigrants exactly yes yeah Mm -hmm. so that's happening now is that like a natural thing to happen so my sense of the history of our species is that in any given population Above a certain size, I don't know what that size is. There's somebody who wants to see what's on the other side of the hill. They're not content just staying in the cave. What's over there? I want to find out. Oh, don't do that. It could be dangerous. Nonetheless, I want to find out. So these people, if they return alive, actually become heroes. They've discovered something. They bring back a new food source, a water source. They have stories to tell. These people become important parts of the tribe. 
And so if they say there's better living quarters over there than this cave, then you pick up and move. Maybe not everyone can make it because they're old. Maybe not everyone will make it because they don't believe them. I would assert that it's because we have explorers walking among us that we ever got out of the cave in the first place. And perhaps waves of immigration that are not people kicked out or escaping death because of war, Mm -hmm. but people who just want to seek higher opportunity in some other place compared to where they are. That may be genetically encoded in us. How else could we have come out of Africa, explored all of Europe, and then cross into Asia, then cross the Bering Strait? This is a remarkable fact. And the fact that we would walk those distances. We didn't fly. There was no Conestoga wagon. There were no domesticated horses. We walked. Add up that mileage. You're talking 20,000 miles. So we did that. Yeah. Some of it, again, was for survival. There's no food here. Let's check over there. Uh, but surely some of this is because we have an urge to explore or to seek opportunity that is greater than what you're currently experiencing. That will forever uh, stoke the numbers of immigrants in this world. And by the way, if that urge is genetic, and I don't, I don't know if it is, but it, let's say it could be just sort of a random element of who people are. So if it's genetic, it means that the people who have the energy and the, and the, the tenacity to leave what is familiar for something new, that spirit can completely transform civilization. If you gather such people together, It's been argued that the United States was just such a place, open to immigrants up until certain years of the 20th century, but open with fits and starts, but basically open to immigrants from the Civil War right on up through uh, uh, before the Second World War. Um, There's some ugly episodes in there, by the way. I don't want to paint that as a perfectly pretty picture. But the United States, as we know it as a country, which is basically 20th century United States, that's what really put us on the map. Uh, that would have been impossible, undoable, unrealizable without the tenacity of immigrants. What I wanted to talk to you about as well is like people moving, not just around this planet, but like to space. Yeah. So as you may remember, a couple of years ago, there's a guy named Baz Lonsdrop. He's a Dutch fellow, entrepreneur. He created something called Mars One and you sign up for it. And he'll send you to Mars and not bring you back. Oh, my God. So, you know, thousands of people signed up for this. And the people say, I'd rather die on Mars than live on Earth. We interviewed one of them for Star Talk, one of the people who had signed up. And he didn't have kids, but he was married. And then he said something a little peculiar, which I don't know if he fully understood the ramifications of. He said... I showed my wife the application and she encouraged me to go <laughs> to do this. So she loves, she's very supportive of me. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. So who signs up for this? Clearly not everyone. Yeah. But those who do, they're ready to go. So they would be tomorrow's immigrants in a sense, but rather they're going to a place where there isn't a country, uh, you know, a politically established country. So they would be explorers, They'd be um, pilgrims. 
They would be. Yeah, would, they, would they be colonizers? Is yes, there... and colonizers, yeah. I know we've talked on Star Talk before about mm-hmm. like how habitable Mars is and like it would it's actually not... be so uncomfortable. Yes, you would die. You would die. Right? Yeah. Yes. But, um... So that's the difference between the pilgrims who landed at Plymouth Rock here in the United States mm-hmm. and the pilgrims who would land in Mars Rock on Mars. The difference is when the pilgrims got off their ship, they could breathe the air. If their ship broke, the trees in the New World were made out of wood, just like the ones where they came from. So the challenges, however challenging it was to them, are incomparable to what it would take to do this on Mars. Right now, all, can we, all we can imagine is setting up these HAB modules, these bubbles that inside have Earth properties, Earth air, Earth air pressure, this sort of thing. But that's... Living on Earth on Mars, that's not really living on Mars. Just to broaden my answer to your question, if there is an exploration gene or some manifestation of a combination of genes, and that's what got immigrants to leave one place for better uh, shores, then leaving Earth to another planet, it seems to me, would be entirely contained within that same urge. Now that all places on Earth have been mapped, The surface of the Earth is the coastline of tomorrow's ocean that sets sail in space, leaving the surface of the Earth for planets that await us. You're not trying to move, are you? Not you, personally. I'm I'm not one of those people. Yeah. (laughs) People say, you know, if... if You make it sound so appealing. If Elon Musk, you know, can go to Mars, are you going to sign up and go to Mars? Not until he sends his mother. Oh. And successfully brings her back. Then, then I'll go. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just thought for a second you had like a problem with Elon Musk's mother. <laughs> but you're like, yeah. Yeah, she and I never got along. <laughs> <laughs> so do you understand the drive for people to move to America then? Even though you're, you're here, you're born Again, here, so you don't we, know anything else. We want to distinguish people driven out of their homeland because of war or famine or pestilence, whatever, and people who just simply want a better opportunity or, which which was very important in American history, is people who left religious persecution in their home. Because in the United States, we have no laws that establish religions. Let me give you the world through the lens that I carry. Right now, I've got some researchers compiling what fraction of Nobel laureates in America, were born overseas. So there are three main science categories, physics, uh, biology, physiology, and chemistry. And so right now, through physics, halfway through biology, we're going to get to chemistry later. But we got physics. One-third of all Nobel Prizes that have gone to Americans, one-third of those Americans were born overseas. Really? Which makes them immigrants. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's a third. Not... 2%, 1%, 5%, 10%. A third. What is that, like 40%? (laughs) 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 You want me to apologize? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Um, Yeah, it's a little less than 40%. So (laughs) the immigrants are not just some thing. So some some rounding error, as we would say in mathematics, on our on your policy or on your what goes on in your society. They're not some uh, special interest that will detract from what you want to do as an American. They're a fundamental part of what America is and has become. 
that's just the facts. And I suspect the other two categories will come in around the same, about a third. Yeah. But I'll have that confirmed in a little bit. Great. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And so what about, um, you know, an immigrant that doesn't become a Nobel laureate? Have you won a Nobel Prize in any of these categories? <laughs> no, I need oh, to step it up. Step up your game, man. <laughs> but, um, you know, we also spoke to a man who I think you two would love each other, actually. He's in ac- academia. He's a but he's a classics professor. He works out at Princeton um, and he arrived here when he was four from the Dominican Republic and to this day remains undocumented because it's very difficult to get documents, to get status. So he contributes a lot to American society. He mm-hmm. teaches kids, like he's like an incredible mind. He wrote this great book. But when he was like a four-year-old, you know, in living in a shelter system, an undocumented little uh, black boy from the Dominican Republic, like you wouldn't know that, that he would become what he became. But he had to stay here in order to... To, to become that. Yeah. 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 And So I lose sleep each night wondering what discoveries of this world lay unrevealed for want of opportunity by smart people who have no access. And they could be a homeless kid in the street. It could be a, a, uh, a refugee from a country with no opportunity in front of them, but the need to survive. We've been lucky. Luck's probably not the right word. We've been fortunate here in the United States that the smartest people in the world have come here. So we didn't always have to produce the smart person to find the answer. So the Manhattan Project, where we built the bomb, most of the intellectual capital assembled for that was foreign-born, foreign-educated. German? Uh, Some German. uh, Well, Albert Einstein among them, and he wrote down the equation. But um, Any Irish? I, I don't know. See, you Actually, get, no, I'm identifying as African. Identif- <laughs> I'm, no, any African people like me? <laughs> what disturbs me as an academic, because in academia, your currency is your depth of thought. Okay? It's not how strong you are. It's not how beautiful you are. It's not how you carry yourself. It's your depth of thought. And when I see people making policy decisions that are underinformed, I worry that we are shaping a country and a country's conduct based on either false or incomplete information. And that's the beginning of the end of an informed democracy, the day that happens. So when people say, immigrants are taking my job, uh, were you picking grapes in the field? Is that what you were just doing right now? Were you bussing the tables in this restaurant? When a medical doctor walks in, who's an immigrant from, let's say, South America, are you going to say, hey, you took my job. I was going to be a doctor. No. Just about to study for 10 years. <laughs> just so I'm disappointed in the educational system that we could breed an entire electorate that makes decisions that, are, that do not factor in all the information. So that's my lament. Oh, we need to put you in charge. I've said this before. <laughs> no, I don't want to be in charge. I know you don't want to but be. Want, I'm an I educator. Know. I want I to train people I know. so that other people can put other people in charge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, well, as an educator, that's, what, that's how we roll. Thank you. you yeah. Sure? Wait, 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 wait. wait. No. Are you sure? 
<laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I'm a servant of other people's curiosity, so I have nothing to add. You're a servant of other people's curiosity. That's beautiful. Yeah. I'm finding people really generous in sharing their stories, actually. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Well, I think for many people who want to do good, if others hearing their story can improve their life, why not have that urge? In fact, if you don't have that urge, you're not really carrying your weight as a member of society or more broadly as a participant in civilization itself. We are the collective wisdom of those who have come before us. And had they not shared their wisdom, once again, we'd still be in the cave. Thank you, Neil. Mic drop. Hey, boom. (laughs) (laughs) That's our show, and it brings us to the end of season two. I'll see you on Twitter at Maeve Higgins and on Instagram and Facebook at Maeve in America. Meanwhile, you can listen to Politically Reactive, W. Kamel Bell, who you heard earlier, and Hari Kondabolu, while they're back for another season. And it begins on March 29th. I can't wait to listen. Now, thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. And it wouldn't have been possible without our guests and their families, whose generosity and honesty have just been extraordinary. Maven in America is a joint production of Pretty Good Friends and First Look Media. What a dream team! Thank you so much for making this podcast possible. This episode was produced by Shayna Feinberg with help from Erica Romero, Julie Smith-Clem, Naomi Westwater-Weeks, Priyanka Srinivasan, Lital Malad, Nick Bornstein, Matt Chiltz and Pat Mercedes-Miller who wrote our theme music. The show was engineered by Cameron Drews, Paul Rest and Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Liam Stack, the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley and Sarah Taxler. All right, last request. Please rate and review this show on iTunes so that other people can find it. That's it. Thank you so much for listening to Mave in America. I mean, we're almost finished. We just began. Yeah, I know, but I don't oh want to gosh. steal your whole day. No, if, if anyone can or should steal my day, it's you. Really? <laughs> Lock the door. We got him. We're going to do this. No, I'm not. <laughs>